another pot of coffee is brewing and for some reason my week at work felt like it was about a month long and my motivation is in the toilet. However, I will be talking about that more at the end of the episode. I'm currently consuming my fourth cup of coffee because despite it being the weekend, I haven't had a single lie-in and I am here to change things up a bit. All that means is that it's time for the next episode of Not Before Coffee Season 4. I'm your host Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, TV show marathoner, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. This week, I am offering you something a little bit different, and I have been promising it for the last couple of weeks. So for the next few weeks, I am going to be talking about a few of the films that appear on Chris Evans' IMDb page, for March is Chris Evans' season. I was considering only looking at films that were based on books or plays, but then I realised that I could still produce episodes on a popular theme, So this March, I present to you The Darker Side of Chris Evans. Last March, I gave you his good guy side, his romantic side, his geek with a somewhat questionable heart of gold side. So what better way to do things this year than to show you the man with questionable morals, the man who can be a bit of an arse, the man who perhaps isn't quite as nice. This week... Following that theme, I'm reviewing a film in which he plays a pretty small role, to be fair, that of X number two. Yep, we're going there, guys. Scott Pilgrim versus the world. As bass guitarist for a garage rock band, Scott Pilgrim, Michael Cera, has never had trouble getting a girlfriend, usually. The problem is getting rid of them, but when Ramona Flowers... Mary Elizabeth Winstead skates into his heart, he finds that she has the most troublesome baggage of all, an army of exes who will stop at nothing to eliminate him from her list of suitors. The credits are in two parts, the traditional Universal and the obvious Gamer, including Mario sounding audio, which really took me back to the days when my sister had an original Game Boy. Yeah, it's that long ago. Because this is all done very much like a comic book, excuse me as I do the same. Enter our hero, Scott Pilgrim. Question, is he really a hero? He's in the kitchen with three of his friends and fellow bandmates, Neil, Kim and Stephen. They're talking about Scott's new girlfriend, Knives Chow, a schoolgirl five years his junior. While Neil thinks it's cool, Kim is less than impressed. And Stephen just says whatever is on his mind. They all want to know when they're going to meet her, and as if summoned by the thought, the doorbell rings, with sound and visual effect. It is indeed Knives Chow at the door. She's clearly infatuated with Scott, all smiles and happy to see him, and I have no idea why. As each character is introduced, we get a small summary of who they are, how old they are, and their game identity, further continuing the impression that this film is doing something different. Stephen is also 22 and known as The Talent, which is exactly how Scott introduces him to Knives. Stephen clearly wants fans for the band and would love it if Knives geeked out over them while watching as they rehearse. 
The band rehearsal space is set up in someone's lounge. I'm presuming it's Stephen's because, as we later discover, Scott is not quite so lucky when it comes to housing. Kim is less than impressed with knives. She's 23 and just referred to as the drummer. Neil is young Neil, as he is two years younger than the rest of the band at just 20. He also doesn't seem to have a specific role, just support. Maybe he's the roadie or something. He's very quiet and just seems to go along with everything. He's more interested in gaming and sometimes seems quite detached from the band in general. I have to say that I love the effects we see on the screen as the band starts to play. You can see the sound waves, the impact of the drumsticks on leather and metal, and the vibrations of the strings on the guitars. Kim is loud and aggressive, which does seem somewhat of a contrast to her almost gothic appearance. Knives is immediately entranced. Now the real credits start to roll. So we've had a good 10 minutes of film and we get the credits to the sound of We Are Sex bob All of the music in the film, including the songs performed, are written by Nigel Godrich, who is probably best known by most for his work with Radiohead and Tom York, while I probably know him better from Natalie Imbruglia's debut album, Left of the Middle, which has her best tune on it, Torn, and I'm not going to sing it even though it is now reverberating in my brain. I used to sing that while running around my grandmother's downstairs, screaming the song as loud as I possibly could. Yeah, great memories there. Later on that evening, Kim, Stephen, Neil and Scott are talking. And while the others think that Knives is great and her love of their music is awesome, Kim asks Scott if he's evil. She doubts that he has any feelings at all and this is tied to the fact that, as we later discover, Kim and Scott dated in school and he dumped her unceremoniously. Though, really? You're that angry about something and you still have something to do with them? Okay. Afterwards, Scott goes home to the apartment he shares with Wallace Wells, aged 26, played by a rather, at that moment, laconic Kieran Culkin, And immediately, Scott is all about the fact that he's dating a 17-year-old, something he mentions quite a lot, as though her age is the relevant factor in all of this. Wallace is sarcastic and uninterested in Scott's life, but he is also a gossip hound, and despite being asked not to mention it to Scott's sister, he immediately sends her a text. One of the things that I really love about this film is the fact that important and sometimes unimportant sound effects are both visual and audio. When the phone rings and Stacy, Scott's 18-year-old younger sister, starts talking, you see as well as hear the phone ringing. I think that Anna Kendrick has always had an element of the sarcastic about her and it really comes across in this role. In fact, most of the girls in this are quite sarcastic and probably stronger than the male characters in many ways. It seems that Scott is living the cliché. Not only is Knives Chow a 17-year-old Chinese schoolgirl, but she goes to Catholic school complete with the tartan skirt. It's almost as though he knows that he is perpetuating the stereotype, and though part of him is a little mortified that his life is a cliché, Another part of him is sort of proud of it. 
Stacy asks him the important questions. She can't understand why he is doing this. Scott simply replies that it's nice and simple and he likes it, which is fair enough. It seems that a year previously he was dumped rather dramatically by another musician, Envy Adams, played by Brie Larson, and this is his way of moving on. The next day, Scott and Wallace are waiting at the school gates for knives and she even skips. Scott may well be the adult in the relationship, but instead of bringing up her level of maturity, being with her is giving him an excuse to retain his existing level of childishness. They spend their dates at the arcade playing Ninja Ninja Revenge, which is sort of like a dance dance revolution fight game, I guess. <laughs> in fact, that's that's what it looks like. And when I was watching those scenes, all I could think of as much as I didn't want to was the dance game scenes in The Kissing Booth, which is a very random thought to have when I only saw the first one and I didn't even want to watch that. Does Scott actually have a job or money? We don't find out till later, but no, he does not. He's apparently between careers at the arcade when the game finishes. And boy, they do play this like they've done it hundreds of times already. He gets knives to pay for the extension on the game. Does she not ever think that he's a bit of a cheapskate? She's really impressed with his performance in the band and he loves the fact that she wants to talk about nothing but him and his accomplishments. However, at the record store, we bump into Julie Powers, played by the always sniping and very good at it Aubrey Plaza. She's the same age as Scott, and it's obvious that they have something of a history. Knives, as well as being a fan of Scott and Sex bob though she's only just discovered them, also likes the band The Clash at Demon Head. However, Scott makes his feelings known. They sold out, signed to a major label, and the lead singer, Envy, broke his heart. That night, Scott has a weird dream, which is a theme in this, strangely, when someone skates through the desolate desert and tells him he is not alone, just having a dream. When he wakes, we get to see the weirdness that is his life living away from home, sharing a bed with Wallace and someone called Other Scott. He's at the library with knives when he first sets eyes on the girl from his dream with her bright pink hair, big sunglasses and roller skates. She's definitely manic pixie dream girl. From her head to her toes, everything about her screams this particular trope. Time blurs and he's already at rehearsal with the rest of the band. The transitions between scenes are really smooth, almost flawless and very familiar, especially if you have ever watched anything by Edgar Wright at any point in the past. They are Shaun of the Dead and Spaced in Canada. Reluctant though Scott is, he goes to Julie's party and somehow manages to identify the girl he saw in the library and his dream. She's Ramona Flowers and it appears that everyone knows her. From that moment on, Scott is on the lookout for her. In a sea of brunettes and blondes, she will definitely stand out. He edges up to her and starts a conversation. But it seems he only has one chat-up line and it's less than impressive. All about Pac-Man. He then does all he can to find out about her. And the stories he hears are different. Julie isn't happy to share, but she does 
before warning him to stay away. Ramona Flowers is not for him. When Wallace gets home, Scott can't stop talking about Ramona. Even though he is drunk and appears to be half asleep, Wallace still manages to send a text to Stacy telling her all about Scott's obsession. It appears that Stacy is meant to be the voice of reason, the one who does her best, despite being younger, to talk sense into her brother. Not that he actually ever seems to do anything when it comes to listening. Despite being a gamer of some sort, and I use the loosest terms possible here, Scott doesn't really check his email, so he's strangely amused when he gets one from someone called Matthew Patel, declaring that they will be fighting soon. Though it's meant to be sweet, and is somewhat stupid, Scott is stalking Ramona in a weird way, ordering a parcel from Amazon, as he knows she works for them, and wants her to deliver something cool to his home. Before he met Ramona, he was actually interested in spending time with Knives, and the more we see of him with her earlier in the film, the more you realise that there is a good connection and they have a vibe going on. However, now he's met our pink-haired wonder, his enthusiasm has faded completely. It's almost as though it went from happy and light to depressing and dismal in a matter of moments. Arriving later at the band rehearsal, Stephen tells Scott that he's managed to get them a slot in the Toronto Battle of the Bands. Knives is over the moon knowing that her favourite band is going to get a chance to shine. However, Scott is less than interested. And that is probably down to the fact that he is losing his interest in anything that isn't Ramona. At this point, he's a whiny little boy and seriously, I just wanted to smack him. I don't know what it is about him. I don't know if it's the guy who plays him or his character. If he's written that whiny, then yeah, he deserves to get smacked around just a little bit. The next thing we know, Scott is having a dream in which he is chasing Ramona. She has shown up at his front door with a parcel from Amazon. He wakes up to the sound of the doorbell. Ramona is at the door with package in hand. He awkwardly asks her out. But, and here, I really don't blame her. She tells him no. He's creepy. He tells her that there are many reasons for them to hang out. And she finally agrees when he says that he'll sign for the package so that she can leave. Ramona is clearly complicated. But they meet at a park and they talk. It's There are so many moments in this film where you feel like nothing is happening. I mean, it's an hour and 52 minutes. And as you'll find later, a lot of the action doesn't happen for absolutely ages. And then it's all dumped in at the end. I know that he is intentionally dull, but wow, Scott is just unbelievably dull and irritating. Luckily, the rest of the cast make up for his dullness massively. For the entire film, it's snowing and cold, as though that's always what the weather is. So on their date, things get a little bit chilly and Ramona invites him into her apartment for a cup of tea. She has a lot of different blends. I'd only like one of them because I'm not a massive fan of fruit tea at all. And almost as though it's answering his fantasy, they kiss and he sees hearts. 
For a moment, it seems as though they're going to have sex, but then Ramona calls a halt to proceedings because she's changed her mind. And he's actually accepting of that, which for a moment makes him less of an asshole, even though he hasn't yet finished things with knives. The next morning, Ramona walks Scott back to his house and he invites her to the Battle of the Bands, almost as though he's forgotten that Knives is also going to be there. Of course, things are bound to be awkward. Knives, Stacy, Wallace, Ramona. How much more awkward do you need to be? Stephen is suffering from a massive issue with his confidence, not sure how he's going to be able to follow the other bands that are on stage. However, Scott isn't paying attention, too busy focusing on Ramona and Knives and his trouble-causing sister and wondering what they could be saying about him because, of course, they have to be talking about him. There is no other subject. This film would fail so hard when it comes to the Bechdel test. Seriously. Scott and the rest of Sex bob are performing when Matthew Patel bursts through the wall and we get a fight worthy of the best comics. There are a few conversation breaks in the fight, including one where Ramona shares when she went out with Matthew Patel. It appears he was her seventh grade boyfriend and they dated for just a week and a half. There's also a moment where everything turns incredibly Bollywood, including the music. It's un unusual, however, it does introduce the fact that Matthew Patel has special powers. He can produce fireballs and he has demon hipster chicks as his sidekicks. However, for all that, Scott is a fair opponent and he knocks him out with a symbol. All that's left of Patel at the end of the battle is a collection of coins. It's taken 33 minutes to reach this particular moment of the film. And with a film that's only an hour and 52 minutes long, you do have to ask the question, why was there so much exposition at the beginning? Sex bob win their first round of Battle of the Bands. Ramona and Scott leave together and Knives is left alone. On the bus home, Ramona shares that he must defeat her seven evil exes if they're to date. For all that Wallace can be a little corrupt around the edges, he is not wrong when he tells Scott that he needs to tell Knives they're over. And wow, that was a lot of words saying he needs to finish with Knives. He's also a little obsessed with Lucas Lee. That's Wallace. <laughs> not Scott, a skater-turned-actor played by none other than pre-Captain America Chris Evans, and that's why it's in Chris Evans' season. He looks so young here. And it was only 12 years ago that the film came out. So I think working it out, he'd be 41 this year, so he would have been 29 when this film was released. Scott and Knives are in the middle of a record store, when he tells her that things are over. While her heart is breaking and he feels a little bit guilty, Ramona is the only thing on his mind. Though everyone else is upset when Scott tells them that he has finished with knives, they're in the middle of rehearsing when Ramona arrives and the first thing that Scott notices and sends him into an absolute panic is the fact that her hair is now blue. She changed it without even any thought and he wonders if this is an indication of how flighty she could be. On the date he finally has with Ramona, Scott is every single cliche. 
he cooks, he writes and plays a song on his guitar, and then suffering an incredibly uncomfortable lack of self-confidence, he encourages them to go out for a walk. They're out trying to escape the awkwardness of everything when they arrive at a film set where Lucas Lee is filming his latest movie. And the first thing I have to say here is what the heck is with those eyebrows? Seriously, I get it, it's a comic book adaptation, but what is with those eyebrows? Ramona is desperate to leave because it turns out she and Lucas dated when she was in ninth grade and he is another of her evil exes. Even as Lucas is punching Scott in the face, Scott is asking for Lucas's autograph. That's the funniest bit. Cue another dramatic, game-inspired fighting scene. Lucas has backup in the form of a very large stunt team of men with equally awful eyebrows, though they're all silent while Lucas talks with a voice somewhat reminiscent of Ben Affleck when he was playing Batman. Gruff, deep, and not at all like the Chris Evans we're all used to. In fact, if I heard it without seeing it, I would probably have more of a struggle identifying it was him. The fight scene is somewhat like the scenes that Scott and Knives play when they're at the arcade. And though Lucas leaves his stunt team to it, Scott defeats them, and then it's all about the evil ex and our lead. Slow motion, comic book kapow, and we're introduced to the League of Evil Exes. Scott plays to Lucas's ego and challenges him to prove how good he is at skating. Hubris, it seems, will be his end. While the pair were fighting, Ramona bailed, and now she's not answering Scott's calls. However, other people are going to phone him, including Envy, the ex-girlfriend, the woman who broke his heart, because an ex always knows how to dig that knife in just a little bit deeper. After Envy hangs up, Knives calls and shows up at the house, even as Wallace is telling her that Scott isn't in. He's less than subtly throwing himself rather artfully through a window to escape seeing her. As he's walking the streets, the voices of everyone he knows warning him about the seven evil exes are echoing in his head, so you just know another one is bound to show up really soon. And they do. Roxy Richter, played by a blonde punk rock Mae Whitman, shows up, a black speeding cloud of anger. Scott, however, just isn't in the mood. It appears that all the evil exes have some kind of powers, he calls Stacy to get advice because she's the only one who seems to talk any sense. However, when he arrives at her workplace, she's left, literally sped out the door just as he arrived, and Julie Powers is there to give him a lecture, using far too many bleeped out words, on the fact that she warned him not to ask Ramona out. Ramona is also in the coffee shop. She feels the need to justify her behaviour. And even as she starts to do so, Envy shows up. So it's a poop show of massive proportions as far as Scott is concerned. The number of people in Scott's bed has increased and none of them are Ramona. We now have Scott, Wallace, other Scott and Stacy's ex-boyfriend Jimmy. While Scott isn't having the best of luck at this moment in time, 
Wallace seems to be having more than enough for everyone. Despite turning down Envy's offer of a ticket to her latest gig, it appears that Scott will still be going because she went behind his back and asked Stephen to get the band to open for her. Who could say no to that kind of offer when trying to make it in an industry that is notoriously cutthroat? I don't think anybody would, unless they had really good reason to do so. Knives is not over, Scott. She is peering through the window of their rehearsal space and watches broken-hearted as Scott and Ramona snuggle together on the sofa. Angry at the world, and especially at Scott, Knives dyes her hair blue and sends a text to the one person who showed any interest in her, Neil. She's about to put a cat amongst the pigeons, or at least that's what she's hoping. Scott is never going to escape the exes, even at a gig for his own ex. The bass player, Envy's new lover, is also Ramona's old lover, Todd. Now, Brandon Ralph in a blonde wig looks as weird as Chris Evans did with his eyebrows. I am loving the extremes even while I find them really uncomfortable to look at. While poor Knives is completely oblivious to the tension, gushing about the blog that Envy writes, Envy is making subtle digs about Ramona and Scott, and Todd is just glaring. The number three on his shirt couldn't make things any clearer. The scene has all the tension of a gang meeting in a mafia film. It seems that Todd is another ex with superpowers, though his are because he's a vegan. He has telekinetic powers and super strength. He uses his to send Scott into the atmosphere. It really doesn't seem as though he has any hope in this fight, but he's proposing a different type of battle, a bass battle. Q rock band. Though Sarah went into this film having already learnt how to play the bass, Ruth spent four months learning before filming began, and both Alison Pill and Mark Webber also had to learn and then spend months practising with Sarah for their parts in Sex Bobom. There's an interesting little fact for you. Todd is defeated when Scott tricks him into drinking half and half. His powers are removed by the vegan police because he broke vegan law. And thus, the third ex is gone. Ramona and Scott are at the bar talking about exes when number four, Roxy, shows up again, bashing Scott's head on the counter. It's taken him a while, but now he realises why Ramona never says evil ex-boyfriends. It's because she's equal opportunity, love is love, whether male or female, and she's all for it and had an experimental period. Roxy reveals that the battle is for Gideon. He's the end game. But this battle is between Roxy and Ramona, giant mallet versus deadly sword chain combo. However, Scott is the one who must fight, and though he is reluctant to hit a girl, Ramona plays controller with Scott as the avatar, until Ramona is pushed out of the game. Roxy is defeated with a finger to the back of the knee, and Scott wins 4,000 coins. There are just three people left on the list, the Katanyagi twins and Gideon. While all this is happening, the Battle of the Bands is amping up. It's now amp versus amp, band versus band, 
on stage to see who is the loudest, biggest, the best. And Ramona is in the audience, her hair now a bright green, and she's talking with someone who looks incredibly smug. The battle seems to be over in moments. The Katanyagi twins have destroyed Sex Bob-omb's set and torn the roof off the venue. This is the moment where the visual effects showing sound really come into their own. Wind swirls of sound, lightning bolts, stunning dragons, flares of light. All of them are like a battle scene from an old-style arcade game. Scott's determination to win has been taken to another level. Now he knows that Ramona and Gideon are in the audience together. Luckily, in defeating the twins, Scott has earned himself an extra life. He chases after Ramona, tells her that he's in love with her, though he actually says, I'm in lesbian with you, which isn't quite the same thing. And she tells him that they have to break up. And it's all about Gideon. Smug Gideon, sleazy and decidedly nerdy, played by Jason Schwartzman, is happy that he has his prize back and tells Sex Bob-omb that he is signing them, impressed by their performance. Scott's having none of it, though probably a total tit for making a decision on behalf of people who have their own minds. In that moment, he quits the band and is immediately replaced with young Neil, who is only too happy to sign the contract. In a matter of moments, he's been told he's out of the band, his girlfriend's gone back to her ex, and now he's losing his home. And then Gideon calls, rubbing things in further about Ramona, at the same time inviting him to watch his ex-band performing. On Wallace's urging, he goes into battle, and I can't help but feel here that the clothing he pulls on underneath that awful jacket as he prepares for battle against Gideon is something of an homage to the clothes he wore when he was playing Paulie Bleeker in Juno, just a different colour. There are so many signs at this point that Scott is about to enter the boss level, that Gideon is endgame, starting with the increase in the number of combatants as he passes through the earlier stages when he arrives at the theatre, where he is going to try and win Ramona back. Gideon is even sitting on a ziggurat-shaped podium and has a staff, which you just know is going to come into play at some point, whether it contains power or has a sword in it, who knows? In the initial confrontation, Scott earns a power-up, the power of love, by simply admitting that he is in love with Ramona. It has to be said that this fight scene here could have been incredibly gory. Think the Kingsmen Secret Service and that church scene with Colin Firth, or Kill Bill, were it not for the fact that everyone Scott kills turns into coins, it would have been horrific. The level of peril is reduced somewhat simply because we, as the audience, know that the risk is not real, that this is, to all intent and purpose, a level in a computer game. Or a level in a 1980s computer game, probably more accurate. The power of love power-up is powerful enough, wow, that's try and say that three times fast, to give him a one-up against the henchman, but not strong enough against Gideon. Then Knives arrives, angry at Ramona and determined to get revenge. While Scott is trying to de-escalate the situation between Ramona and Knives and is finally outed for cheating on both of them with the other, Gideon takes advantage and stabs Scott through the heart. But don't forget, 
this is a game, and earlier on he earned himself an extra life. All is not yet lost. He is in the desolate desert again, where he first saw Ramona, and they talk about Gideon and how he is controlling her mind. She vanishes, and it's then he realises he still has a one-up and a chance to change things. This time round, he is far more aggressive. He reaches the theatre level, punches everyone, defeats them as quick as he can. This time around, he earns the power of self-respect, far stronger than the power of true love. When Knives shows up, he has the courage to admit that he was the one who hurt her, that he was the one who cheated, and he was the one at fault. When Gideon comes back to finish the battle, Knives and Scott fight side by side, as they have done so many times before in the arcade, well-coordinated and knowing each other's strengths and abilities. The final battle between Scott, Knives and Gideon is the true game and comic book combo, split-screen, perfect score announcements and flickering defeated foes. However... It's not over. Scott has to battle himself. Nega Scott. And he knows he has to do this one alone. Luckily, though, this is not like the others. When he finally leaves the theatre, he has become friends with himself. At this moment, it's easy to see how the original ending of the film could have worked. Knives and Scott were supposed to walk off in the sunset together, leaving Ramona behind. But that isn't how the fans wanted it to be. And with the release of the final graphic novel shortly before the film was due for release, three months I think, it was for Ramona and Scott that the ending needed to be happy. They were the two who had to get the happily ever after that Scott had been fighting for all along. This film was actually Edgar Wright's first big Hollywood film, coming off the back of the success of two films I personally really enjoy watching, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, and of course Spaced, which I reviewed back in season two. Released in 2010, it had a budget of £85 and though it has become something of a cult hit, at the time it was at bit of a box office blunder, making only $49.3 million globally. As many will already know, the film itself was based on the Scott Pilgrim series of graphic novels by Canadian Brian Lee O'Malley. There were six individual books released between 2004 and 2010. Interestingly enough, though, the colour versions, which are most commonly seen now, weren't released until after the film between 2012 and 2014. The casting choices I personally felt were interesting for this film. Sarah was in a bit of a career slump, having found great success in the earlier part of 2000s with things like Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, Superbad and, of course, Arrested Development. But in 2010, things were just a little bit quieter for him, So the role of Scott Pilgrim came at a really good time. That said, many of the cast have moved on to even bigger things. And that's, of course, why it is part of my second Chris Evans season. Despite having only a small role in the film as Lucas Lee, we also have actors like Anna Kendrick, Kieran Culkin, Brie Larson, Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Aubrey Plaza, 
all of whom have moved on to find even bigger roles, get nominated or win Oscars, and join the MCU. Casting and making the film took over two years, and in that time, a lot changed for the cast. When she auditioned, Aubrey Plaza hadn't yet started her role in Parks and Recreation, and Anna Kendrick had yet to play any type of role in Twilight. I've already mentioned that it has turned into something of a cult hit since it was released, but what did other people think of the film? Did they like it? Unlike many of the films that I have previously reviewed and then checked out on sites like Rotten Tomatoes, this one actually had a pretty good... Well, actually, it was a great score from the critics of 82%. David Zuckerman at Film Comment called it a fresh tomato, stating, Part video game, part teen romance, part postmodern collage experiment. Edgar Wright's Sue generous adaptation of Brian Lee O'Malley's graphic novel is so visually ADD. I was expecting the Universal reps to be handing out Adderall after the screening. Install a camera in a pinball and you won't approximate the whip-pan visual acrobatics at work here. No surprise that we playing 18-year-olds can't get enough of it. Apparently, fans of the graphic novel went neon with anticipation at this year's Comic-Con, ground zero of the comic book world, and judging by the audience's reaction at the test screening, the film is hardly a letdown. Freaks will find it hard to argue with Michael Cera as the bass-playing Canadian super-anti-hero who must ward off his new girlfriend's seven deadly exes, Nintendo-style. An impish ninja full of elfin charm and nurtulence, Cera is the perfect fit for O'Malley's coy hipster stereotype. So it's clear that David Zuckerman found something in Scott Pilgrim vs. The World that he liked and put it into words. However, not everyone was so complimentary. Despite the 82% rating, Deborah Ross from The Spectator titled her own review, Hollow Loser, and went on to pull it apart bit by bit. Though I guess that's what a reviewer is meant to do. Contemplative cinema, this is not. Duh. But it's hardly worth picking on the pace and narrative. Let's face it, it's not the film that has an attention span problem, but the new generation. Scott Pilgrim is just one in a string of recent pictures geared toward pixelated youth, which want to conflate the movie-going experience with the synesthetic dispersion of the video arcade. Not my idea of a good time at the cinema per se, but then again, the inherent non-linearity of this movie may find the new kids getting experimental despite themselves. This film does have energy and invention, I suppose, it is fast, it is noisy, in its way it's audacious, it pulsates with graphic life. The word thonk flashes up on screen when Scott hits his head like that kapow used to do in the Batman TV series. Animated word balloons pop out of people's mouths, phone texts write themselves across the screen. There are force fields, on-screen scores of the kind found on computer games, plus moments of pure magical realism. Are the characters for real, or part of an arcade game themselves? I don't know, and I didn't much care. Energy and invention and audacity count for little unless you can sense something at its core. Unless a film gives you something to feel. But there is zilch here. It's hollow. It's as if working on the visual style was so exhausting, no one had anything left over for a decent script. A few gags, but nothing to write home about. 
or interesting characters. Scott, in particular, is a mighty bore, and the narrative is mind-numbingly repetitive, relying as it does on the same thing over and over. That is, Scott seeing off the exes in strung-out, pointless CGI fights. By the end of the first fight, I'd had quite enough and still had six to go. I should also add that during these fights, Scott transforms into a spectacular action god. How? Why? No idea. Unfathomable. Like I said, I don't know if I failed this film or it failed me. Maybe I just didn't get the popular culture references. Why, when Scott destroyed an evil ex, did that ex explode into a shower of coins? If this had some significance, it flew right over my double headache. This is a torturous film, and I wish I'd stayed at home with a nice cup of tea, the first sip of which I always find so hits the spot. Seriously, it does. Quite clearly, this was not the film for Deborah Ross, who recently reviewed Robert Pattinson's outing as Bruce Wayne, the Batman, and titled her review Humorless and Stale. And the title for her review of musical Everybody's Talking About Jamie was A Pep Talk Nightmare. So maybe she has her corner and she likes to stick to it consistently. So, did I like the film? It's a fun romp, but I have to admit Michael Cera irritates the heck out of me. He is not a likeable character in anything I've seen him in, whether it's Nick and Nora, Juno, or Arrested Development. There's something about his voice that just grates, and I have to be honest, the film is really good. I have always liked Edgar Wright's style, and I can see elements of the familiar in what he has done with this. I just can't help but feel he did himself a little wrong by casting someone who comes across as so unlikable in the lead role. I have to admit that I haven't read the graphic novels, so to anyone who has, is Scott Pilgrim meant to be such a whiny little bee and actually a rather mean and selfish individual? Will I watch it again? I think that I have likely watched this film about ten times in the past, the first time I watched it was not long after it was released on DVD, and I found it funny. The story moved along pretty quickly, and I always found Scott to be a bit of an ass. Apart from that, the action that goes on around him makes for a fun film. So I probably will watch it again at some point, though it's not one I automatically reach for when I want to pass a few hours of enjoyment. Is now a good time to tell you that this is one I had to rent from Amazon, because I don't currently have it in my Chris Evans collection. Would I recommend it? Come on now, are you seriously going to tell me that you haven't already seen it? I think that though this film didn't do incredibly well at the cinema, it's been successful in the 12 years since it was released. In fact, in the US alone, it's made over $30 million in DVD and Blu-ray sales since it was made available at the end of 2010. Whether that success has something to do with the ongoing success and fan base of the other actors involved in the film, or is just because they have realised the value of the film itself, is impossible to determine. If you haven't already seen it, I hope that this blow-by-blow -blow account of it doesn't put you off giving it a go. It's worth it for the stylish manga and video game-like direction, the unusual plot, and yes, the moments where you can say, Wow, is that such and such from that movie? 
as you recognise someone playing a background role. So, how are things in the coffee household this week? I've already mentioned that my motivation is in the toilet, and while I would like to say this is what caused it, I get the feeling there are a few things contributing to my mood. The biggest factor is that the closer we get to April, the closer we get to a month that dredges up old and painful memories. I know it's been almost 40 years since my dad passed, but I'm allowed to be sad about it. I won't harp on about it. I just go quiet, get on with my life and focus on the good thoughts as much as I can. However, that doesn't stop them from haunting me, from making things a little bit harder. I'll admit, I cry a lot, and not just in April. I cry whenever I read a sad book, when I watch something on TV that reminds me just a little bit. Hello, (laughs) I think I already told you about my experiences watching Onward in the cinema, yet I still did that to myself. I honestly believe that a lot of the tears and sadness are just part and parcel of life. You have to pick yourself up, dust off the bad thoughts and move on. I know that if I consistently and constantly let the negative thoughts in my head eat away at me, there would be nothing left. I find those few things that I get joy from, like a new book that is perhaps a bit twee or a little daft. I read it, I laugh and there's a moment to get me through the next few hours of darkness. Over the last few years, I have seen so many people using their depression as an excuse not to do something. I am guilty of that myself and I'll admit it full on. I have allowed my fear of crowded spaces to stop me from doing so many things. Fun things, challenging things. I don't take chances. And though it was all in the name of self-preservation, it could have stopped me from doing amazing things. Like many people, I have horrid memories from my past. An abusive ex who gaslit me, who treated me like the dirt on his shoe while I cleaned and cooked like a 1950s housewife, desperate to make him care for me. All the while, he slept with my so-called friends, and they laughed about me behind my back. I've allowed those memories and others that are far worse colour my future. Slowly but surely, I am pushing those dark thoughts back. Has it taken over 25 years? Yes, but I am getting there. I wouldn't even recognise the boyfriend. I don't speak with the ex-friends and I'm certainly not pining for what could have been. There's no point. This year I turned 48 and I have decided that the time has come to actually move on. Has this led to a momentary slide into depression? Yes. Am I going to let that stop me? No bloody way. Okay, so what was I getting at with this? Don't do what I did and allow something to eat away at you for more than half your life, getting in the way of moving on and doing something you want. Am I going to be jumping on to dating sites to find a new person? No, because that's not what the memories of that have done to me. Am I going to try and move past the other issues? Yes. Will it take time? Unfortunately, of course it will. It's not going to take five minutes to go away. Am I going to let that stop me? Not at all. Don't let fear stand in the way of doing what you want with your life. Stepping up, taking chances. It's terrifying. 
But if you get what you want at the end of it, then facing the fear is worthwhile. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a star rating on Good Pods, Spotify or Podchaser. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs and on Instagram at notbeforecoffeepodcast or you can check out my website notbeforecoffee.co.uk Well, I need another cup of coffee as I haven't had enough today so I'm going to go and put the kettle on though it only takes a minute to boil. Until next time, this is me saying farewell. Farewell.